Hey, everyone. How are we doing? Good. That was like a quarter of you. I hope the rest of you are doing well also. Hey, it's so good to be back. Um, as Jared said, it's been about four, four and a half years since you guys sent us off to the struggling small church down the road called Beaverton Foursquare. Um, we have served in a variety of capacities since we've been out there, but it's always good to come back home. You know, I was uh, officiating a wedding last night, and um, it was for a family that I've known since I was a baby. And uh, they, they had five kids, and their youngest was getting married. And so I had the privilege to do their premarital counseling and then to officiate their wedding in the sweltering 150-degree heat yesterday. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I'm not bitter, I promise. But uh, yesterday, it was a, an amazing occasion because as I was driving to the house that they lived at for over 25 years, I was thinking back on all the memories that I had at that very place. Um, I remember when their whole family of seven lived in this tiny shack while they were building this beautiful house out there. And um, I remember the birthdays and the other weddings that happened on that property and all the memories that were there. And uh, when I walked in, I walked into the house like I'd lived there, you know, like I didn't knock, I didn't do anything. I just walked right in. And uh, it was because the place felt like home. And that's how I feel about Evergreen. As I was driving down Evergreen Parkway this morning, um, I, haven't head, I haven't gone this direction uh, west in quite a while. And things look a little bit different, but eerily familiar all at the same time. And uh, it's just been an absolute joy to have the opportunity to come back here. So thank you for welcoming me and my family with such open arms. As Jared said, we have two new additions, um, little Scarlett, who's three and a half, going on 13, and, uh, and Isla, who's nine months old. Both of them are full of life. They're so much fun. They're a joy to be a dad. And, and um, I know my wife would say the same thing about being their mom. They're incredible. And so thank you for welcoming all of us with open arms. So uh, I have been reflecting and thinking um, about the last decade of my life over the last few months. And the reason why is because I'm wrapping up a decade of pastoral ministry. Um, I'm wrapping up a decade of my life and about a decade of marriage as well. And so it's, you know, time to take inventory of all that's happened. And each, you know, there's, there's chunks of time that I have classified as seasons of my life. Um, there's a season of singleness and a season of being a newlywed and then a season of having little kids, which is marked by no sleep, right? Um, <laughs> or very little, at least. And uh, each one is, is drastically different. They came with different challenges. They came with different advantages and joys, and you fill in the blank. I was also thinking about my season here at Evergreen, and I was thinking about, like, what marked this season of our life the most? And I, I picked four words, because that's what pastors do. We, like, boil things down to words. And I picked four words to kind of sum up my season here at Evergreen. And number one is unexpected. My wife and I had a plan for our life when we met, you know? We had the five-year thing all kind of figured out. And we had believed and hoped and kind of put our effort and energy into that pathway going this way. And how many of you know that God... Um, we make plans, but God directs our steps, right? And so although our path was going this way, God rearranged it by a graduation party and a cup of coffee. And uh, here we were out in this place. And, you know, when God does that in our lives, when he give, takes us on an unexpected journey, he does so because he knows that it's going to be best for us. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. 
It doesn't mean that it's uh, not going to be fraught with challenges, but it's going to be the best possible thing for you and for me. And so this is the journey that we went on and we landed here. And as unexpected as it was that we came, it was unexpected that a year and 10 months we would be sent from this place. I wasn't like applying for jobs or trying to find my way out. I, we loved this place. We loved our season here. And so it was kind of, we had to kind of let go again and see that God had another path, another plan for us. When I landed at Beaverton Foursquare, um, I came as the connections pastor. My primary responsibility was to help the church be positioned to reach a future generation that the church had been missing. And so um, that's no easy task, and we are still trying to figure it out. But we are farther down the road than we were when we started. Um, I oversee now all of our adult discipleship ministries, so Rooted and Life Groups and Men's and Women's Ministries and Young Adults and our Connections Ministry. Those kind of fall under our team, serve with a great team over there, and we're having a blast. The other thing that sort of marked um, the season of Evergreen in our life was that this was a fun place. I was thinking about it. One time, um, we went out to a conference called Catalyst. It's a Christian leadership conference. It just happened to be like 20 minutes away from Disneyland as a team. And uh, I think the conference was an excuse to go to Disneyland from the Roths. But that's the way Jared and Ann are. They're fun. And they expect and hope that life would be fun and enjoyable. But it's also the way you are. I, I, I remember the turkey shoot, which I, I understand is still going on, right? I don't know if anyone's ever broken my record, but I remember the turkey shoot. Um, I remember filling in on a basketball team. Um, I remember playing on a co-ed softball team here. Um, I remember a golf tournament, which again, I won. But that's beside from the point. I'm joking. I'm joking, kind of. Um, I understand that you were all still doing some of those things. And again, it's because you're fun. And, and more than that, I know your priority of, of kids' ministry just down the way. And I see these kids come pouring out, and they're having fun. And let me tell you, as a dad, that's one of the most meaningful things on the planet when your kid loves to come in the doors of church. And so fun. This place was not only a fun season um, for us personally, but we recognize that it's just a fun place to be. It was also a healing season for us. You know, some of the most grievous personal injuries to our souls are committed by other people. And they're often the hardest ones to heal from. And isn't it just like God to allow the greatest healing of those great pains to happen within the context of relationship with people as well? I'm convinced that the church is the only environment where you can heal from some of the wounds that you have, you have been afflicted with. Because I believe that's the way Jesus wants to work in and through people to heal you from the wounds that have been caused by people. And Evergreen was that place for us. In response to rejection and disappointment and our path not going the way we thought, you all opened your arms to us and allowed us to heal. So it's also a place of growth. And uh, this one is hard. You know, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old who complains of growing pains often. I don't remember what they feel like, but I'm going to take her word for them, that growing is not an easy thing. And yet, um, as you are a congregation that is growing, you um, have to be a congregation that is ascending congregation. And I was thinking about the Boomerang series and how many of the people in the last six years that have come in and out of this place 
our pastor, senior pastoring churches and church planning and, and continuing to further the kingdom wherever they go. That is a marker of what this place was. And this was the incubator, the environment for us to grow and to be able to continue to take the work out. What was deposited in us in this season, the seed that was sown, was planted in good soil and is producing fruit in our lives. Thank you for the tremendous amount of love and prayers and support you extended our family. Today, we're going to continue to look at that very same idea, seeds planted in soil producing fruit, by looking at a parable of Jesus called the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. If you have a Bible, would you turn to Mark chapter 4? Now, this is one of the most well-known parables in the entirety of the Bible. It's well-known because it's in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel account. We're going to look at Mark's gospel account. Um, He takes a different vantage point from it. Now, before Mark chapter 4 is Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, what you see is very simple. You see Jesus calling 12 disciples to himself. Right? That's one of the highlights of the chapter. And what is a disciple? A disciple is an apprentice. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is someone who sits at Jesus' feet and they mimic the way Jesus lives and they embody the teachings of Jesus. So Jesus calls his 12 to follow him, to become like him. And immediately then Jesus enters into his public ministry domain where Jesus starts to preach and Jesus starts to heal and Jesus starts to teach about the kingdom of heaven. And on this journey, he goes back home, back to a place that he was known. Now, you have to remember that Jesus had skin and bones, right? He had blood pumping through his veins, fully God and yet fully human. And at 30, he lived for 30 years before he steps onto the scene in ministry. Jesus ran a business. He knew what it was like to work a nine to five, whatever the equivalent of it was 2,000 years ago. I don't know. Jesus was a person, a human being. He had friends. He had family. And so Jesus goes back home where he is well known, but now taking on the mantle of rabbi, messiah, savior, son of God, who he was always, and yet now he is stepping into public and pronouncing that the kingdom is coming. So this is, the wor- this is what's happening. And as Jesus goes home, nobody recognizes him for who he is, right? So the religious leaders, the establishment, the churches back in his day see Jesus and reject him. It'd be like all of your coworkers, you all share the same line of work and all of them rejecting you, not creating any space for you, no one being willing to hire you and put you in that role, This is the world that Jesus enters into when he goes back home. But to make matters worse, his family rejects him as well. Which there's no pain, I believe, harder to process through than the rejection of the one people, the one group of people that should be the most receptive to who you are. And so Jesus enters into this place of rejection. There's 12 that want to follow him, sit under his feet, but the multitudes in home, at home, turn their back to Jesus. Now, I am a self-diagnosed people pleaser. 
My wife confirms my diagnosis, by the way, which is dangerous to be a pastor and speaker and to, to fear rejection. You could, you could psychoanalyze me and take it all the way back to the bullying in the first grade and, you know, you fill in the blank and all of that is true. But what I know is that there's a strength and weakness in me that I want people to be pleased by my work, by my words, by the way I love and care for people. And yet at the same time, I can bend and cater to that because I hate being rejected. Now, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus felt what we feel. The scriptures say he empathizes with all of the things that we experience and know because he himself experienced them. And yet he did not allow rejection to prevent him from living up to who God made him be to be. You know, there's this beautiful story where Jesus is baptized in the water. And when he comes up, a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love and am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus found his identity wrapped in the very fact that he was loved by his father. So this rejection and how Jesus responds to this rejection is the basis, it's the groundwork, it's the framework, it is the foundation of what is just about to happen when he tells this next parable. So go with me, Mark chapter 4, finally, verse 1. And again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat, he set, in it out, he set it out onto the lake, and while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So Jesus leaves home, he moves to another region, and crowds and multitudes come flocking to him. Again, you would know this, that Jesus was a public and popular figure by his um, by the first few chapters in Mark because of his miracles, because of his teaching with authority. He had raised some people from the dead, healed people from you know, terminal illness. So Jesus was a popular guy. People wanted to see him. They wanted to be around him. And so he, he moves out of this place of rejection, and now he's got the crowds flooding and filling the space, so much so that he has to get in a boat and he has to preach from a boat, which is kind of cool. But the people are along the shore. Now, if you could read Greek, I can't. I'm guessing most of you can't. You would see that the word for shore and the word for soil are the exact same words. So Jesus is about to tell a parable about soil to a group of people standing on soil. He's doing something here. It's brilliant. Let's see what it is. Verse 2, he taught many things by parables. Now, what is a parable? A parable is a story with a truth. I think it's interesting that Jesus' primary way of teaching in the Gospels is to tell parables. My primary way of preaching is to avoid parables at all costs. I realized this as I was preparing for this message, that this is perhaps of the hundreds of sermons that I've given, this is perhaps the only one I've ever done on a parable. And I had no idea why. I, I wasn't intentional. But I realized that these parables, they're difficult to understand, right? They're easy to misinterpret, and they just flat out take a lot of work to figure it out. 
And that's one of the aversions that we have towards reading the parables. So as I studied them and I kind of prepared for, okay, how do I wrap my mind around all of this? I came across three principles for understanding parables. And I'm going to encourage you, if you're taking notes, write them down. These aren't going to change your life like this very moment. But as you're reading the Gospels later and you're reading the parables later, these things will help you understand what's going on. Three principles, real quick, and then we'll dive into what the parable actually says and what it means. Number one, not all parables point to the same truth. Some parables are about the end times. Some parables are about judgment. Some parables are about your work. Some parables are about grace. Some parables are about forgiveness. Not all of them are about the same thing. They all tell you about the kingdom of heaven, which is like God's economy, God's way of doing things, the way it works under his rule and reign. But there's many different components to that. Number two, often they will have only one basic truth in mind. It can be tempting, as number three says, that not every detail has to have a meaning. It can be tempting to try to find many different details and plant meanings into all of them, when in reality, much of the parables, the details in them, are there to tell a good story. The parable itself is communicating one simple idea about the kingdom, and it can be tempting to try to codify it and kind of ascribe a bunch of things that Jesus just never flat out intended. So, with these three principles in mind, let's look at the parable of the sower. Verse 2, he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was on rocky places where it did not have much soil. Oh, I read that twice, didn't I? It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, verse 6. But when the sun came up and the plants were scorched, they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, it grew, it produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Did you notice that the parable was sandwiched between the command to listen? In the beginning, he says, listen. At the end, he says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. Repetition in the Bible means pay attention. So on one hand, Jesus is saying, listen, and then the way he is constructing this whole message, at the same time, he's saying, pay attention, don't miss this. And yet, the very next verse says, when he was alone. You have multitudes of people that have come to listen to Jesus preach, but only 12 stick around. Jesus allows thousands of them to walk away. He gives them the parable. He encourages them to listen to what he's saying, and yet thousands go away. Why? Why would that happen? Why would Jesus do that? That goes against everything I know and how good church is supposed to be done, right? Raise your hand, make a decision, you know, you fill in the blank. And all those things are good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking them. Please fill a connection card out. We would love to, or they would love to follow up with you. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong. I'm just saying Jesus is so interesting. He almost always does the opposite thing that we would expect. 
And here he is, thousands of people. He, he basically like gives it to them already, gives them the clue. Hey, I'm going to tell a parable about soil, and you're standing on soil, so I think this is about you, right? And yet they walked away, and he was left alone. I think this parable is about reception, not like cell phone reception, although that could work. I'm talking about the kind of reception of receiving something, taking something in. As I mentioned before, I did a wedding yesterday, and one of the, you know, everybody comes to the ceremony so they can go to the reception. Am I right? Right. That's, that's kind of the way it goes for a lot of people, at least. And that's because it's the fun part. It's the part where you dance and where you sing and Maybe you sing, I don't know. Um, but you dance and you have a good time. You get to meet people, all of that. The, the ceremony is more formal and it's beautiful, but it's very different than the reception. But what marks the reception at the end is the announcement that the bride and groom have now become one and we welcome them in and that's when the party starts. It's a receiving, right? See, unlike the wedding that I was at yesterday where everyone received this young couple, it is very clear that the vast majority of the people that were listening to Jesus did not receive what he had to say and walked away. And Jesus was okay with that. More on that in a moment. Back to verse 10. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parable. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seen but never perceiving and never hearing but never and ever hearing but never understanding otherwise they might turn and be forgiven has anybody besides me ever been really confused by passages like this like i thought he wanted everybody to know who he was and he wanted all men to be saved and women no discrimination here he wanted everybody to be saved right so if we look at it at face value, it can be confusing. But you have to remember, the incarnate Son of God is standing there. If God was not trying to reveal who he was to the world, he wouldn't be there. If he was trying to keep hidden the things of God completely, then he wouldn't have shown up in the first place. He wouldn't have been preaching to them. So it can't mean here that Jesus is trying to hide things from people so they won't turn and be forgiven. I think what Jesus is getting at is that People aren't looking for him. They're not ready to receive him. Louis Armstrong. Do I have any jazz fans in the room? A few jazz fans? All right, I love it. Louis Armstrong was once asked by an interviewer if he could define jazz. And his response was, man, if you got to ask that question, you don't ever going to get it. And here's the reason why, is if you have no interest in jazz... If you have no interest in learning about it, no interest in hearing the music and trying to get a feel and a vibe for it, you'll never understand it. See, Louis was onto something, and that his point is made in the same way as Jesus makes his point, which is this. Jesus speaks to a group of people that weren't really looking for him. They weren't really looking for the kingdom. They liked the miracles. They liked the show. They had all sorts of their own agendas for him, whether it was a miracle worker or a political leader or you fill in the blank, but they weren't really there to receive this message that would transform and change their lives because that's kind of uncomfortable, right? Except for the 12. They're there 
they're listening and they ask him the question. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 13, then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Which is like comforting to me when I'm reading the Bible because I'm like, okay, good. The disciples didn't get it and I don't get it either, right? It kind of makes me feel a little bit better. And yet, I don't think Jesus is condemning them for their lack of understanding. Because then why would he go on to explain it to them? If he was trying to beat them down, then he wouldn't have taught this to them. But instead, he responds and teaches them. Now, one little quick note on verse 13. If you get this parable, Jesus says you get them all. There's something unique about this parable. That if you understand with the message, then you'll understand the rest of them. So if you want to know the parable, start here. That's what Jesus says. And now Jesus is going to expound my sermon for me, which is great. It's much better to hear from Jesus than me. Verse 14, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that has been sown into them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, they hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful." Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Jesus says that the four soils represent four different people. The first, actually all of them, initially receive the word positively. In the sense that the seed is sown and received by each soil but the outcome of the sowing is drastically different. The first is a path, which if you've ever walked on a hard dirt path, what you realize is nothing grows in those spaces. And so seed is scattered onto the path, but it does not take root. It doesn't even get into the soil, and so the enemy comes and plucks it up. But again, it was initially received positively, but there was nothing there to sustain its life. The second two soils the seed actually does get into the ground. It actually does begin to take root, but for different reasons, it can't produce fruit. It doesn't last. Whether it's distraction or worry or persecution or doubt, fears, the deceitfulness of money and success and fame, you fill in the blank, all prevent the seed from producing fruit. And then last is the good soil, which is your goal, right? It's the good soil that This person's heart is cultivated with humility to receive God's word and to to let it begin to transform their lives. Four thoughts, five thoughts. Five thoughts on this parable. Number one, the sower does not prejudge the soil. This is not an irresponsible farmer. In Jesus' day, this is how you farmed. You scattered seed, and if a little bit of it fell in the wrong places, well, maybe it will produce a crop, maybe it won't. Jesus' analogy here isn't to say that the one who is sowing in bad soil is irresponsible. What he's saying is, do not prejudge the conditions of the soil that you are sowing seed. What does that mean for us? 
Well, as you're sharing the good news of Jesus with people, isn't it tempting to go, "Ah, but I'm not sure they'll receive that. I'm not sure they're ready for that. I'm not sure they want to hear that. It's tempting to begin to make excuses for that and to think that, well, and even spiritualize it and make a plan around that and be like, well, we're only going to posture ourselves to reach only these people because I think they'll be the most receptive. Jesus kind of blows that whole idea up and he casts seed anywhere. I remember um, I was listening to uh, the boomerang message by Rick and Elizabeth just a few weeks ago, and Rick was telling a story, and he was talking about this guy he was getting to know, and the dreaded question came up to Rick, what do you do for work? And, And let me tell you, I've thought of every single excuse to try to maintain my integrity and answer that question. I thought like, okay, I could tell him I'm a teacher, I could tell him like I work for a nonprofit, which is kind of hip and cool in Portland, like, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, I, could I, how could I craft this in such a way that would not shut the relationship down? And so when Rick was sharing this story, I was just like, oh, I feel your pain. I hear you. I hear you. And he was talking about his emotions and his fear centered around that situation and how it initially did shut down relationship communication. But later on, this man had a struggle. He was going through something difficult in his life, and Rick asked if he could pray for him. If you remember the story, Later on, he would find that the very few words that he spoke in prayer over this man began to change his heart and change his life. See, if Rick had just judged the book by its cover and and been like, nah, we had one experience and that didn't go so well, so I'm not going to offer to pray for him because I don't think he's ready, he would have missed out on what God was doing in this man's life. So don't judge a book by its cover. Don't prejudge the soil as you sow seed. But at the same time, what I love about this is that this doesn't give us permission then to just go print off a thousand tracts and shove them in everybody's face, right? Jesus, not, not that that's bad. I'm not, hear me here. Maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus is so creative in how he announces the kingdom, right? He tells the story. He lets, and this is what's so creative about it. In Jesus's day, everybody lived off agriculture, We still do today, but we don't think we do because we can drive down to the grocery store and fill our refrigerator up. They actually had to sow seeds, watch them grow, right? Reap the harvest and make food out of it. That was how they lived. And so everyone understood this analogy in ways that we just don't anymore. And so as the crowds and multitudes were walking away in the very terrain that Jesus gave this message, there was probably waist-high wheat ready to be harvested. They would have had to walk through paths and they would have seen rocky soil and seen thorns in the midst of all of that. Jesus was so brilliant. He knew that not everyone would receive it in that moment, but he was going to give them something that they could hold on to and they would not be able to forget because it was their everyday life that they would encounter Jesus. It reminds me of this high school student at Beaverton who's a brilliant young man. He wrote a play at Lincoln High School. He directed it. Now, he, wasn't, he wanted Christ to be made known through this play, but he was obviously limited to what he could do in the Portland public school system. And so instead of like putting a cross up on stage and being like, yeah, here's the message of Jesus, he took themes like grace and reconciliation and redemption, and he embedded them into this play that he wrote, and he was able to direct it, and it was able to change lives. It was creative. It was different. It reminds me a lot of Jesus telling a parable. Or if you're a parent, you know, um, we took my daughter Scarlett to Disneyland when she was three 
forever changed her life. She's part three, part Disney princess, if you saw her. She likes to curtsy wherever she goes. Um, one of her absolute favorite Disney movies is Moana. And uh, I have some, you know, Hawaiian roots, and so I love the movie as well. And We've probably watched it 72 times together because that's just kind of how it goes. Um, and so when we were watching it, and the more I watched it, the more I realized there's all these themes that I see about redemption and grace and forgiveness and self-sacrifice for the good of others, and it gave me a platform to begin to tell her more about Jesus. It was creative and different, but you could approach it in one of two ways. You could say, eh, there's some weird stuff in that. I don't want that to affect my kid, or I can help her see that all stories can point to the bigger, better story of God. And so, again, this is not permission to just start shoving Jesus in people's faces, but it is an encouragement to get creative and to think about the different ways that you can share the gospel with people. Next is this, don't give up hope for a harvest. I've been laboring in prayer for over seven years for this one individual in my family, yet to see life change. Don't give up hope. Harvest is just around the corner. We are people of hope. That's what the Bible says. Hope is eternal. We don't ever lose it. We believe in a God who is going to come back and make all things that are wrong right again and rescue us. The Israelites had this belief that God was the one who provided the harvest. They had three harvest seasons in their year. So if one harvest failed, they would wait for the next one. And if that one failed, they would eagerly anticipate the next one. And so on and so forth. If you're laboring over something, if you've sown seed in a relationship, you're waiting to see how things would come. Don't give up hope. Growth depends on God alone. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul, the apostle, makes it very clear that God is the only one who causes the seed to grow in our lives. It's tempting, and I've even been told this before, my time around you, I've grown so much, right? And that's partially true. It's okay to be the catalyst that God used to help someone grow. But on the other side, may, may we never forget that it is truly God that allows us to grow. So as you share the word, as it lands in people's hearts, it is not your responsibility to make that grow. That's God's job. Next, and we're almost done, is sowers are not called to be successful, but fruitful. There is a parable in uh, excuse me, there's a prophet in the Old Testament who preached for something like 47 years and nobody ever listened to him. You know what that would be called today? Unemployed, <laughs> right? In, in our way of seeing things, and, and there's definitely truth in this, but the bent has gone too far. If there isn't numerical evidence to, pr- to prove its success, then it is a failure. Here, success is dependent upon Jesus, Here, success is dependent upon God causing it to grow. Your job is to be faithful. So you're you're at work. You're in a situation where you're frustrated or disappointed at how people have been responding to your attitudes, your um, efforts to share the gospel and love them and care for them. Don't be discouraged. 
continue to be faithful. You may just be a link in the chain in their life. You may never get to seal the deal. You may never get to see those people give their life to Jesus, but be faithful and continue pressing in. As a parent, sometimes it feels like it's, you're like on a hamster wheel. You're like, I thought I said this 55,000 times, and here we go again, right? And yet continue to sow good things into your kids. Continue to believe that God will allow those things to grow. And last is this. Soil is unable to change its character, but humans can. I have never seen soil will itself to be better soil, right? It just doesn't work that way. This is where sort of we, we take a turn from just talking about dirt to talking about our human souls. You and I actually can change. We're dynamic. We're different. But this parable serves as a reminder that we need to take a soil test in our own hearts. This is the one big truth of the story is what soil are you? You know that you can be a fruitful soil at one season of your life and then later become a bad soil, which is a warning for all of us. Maybe you look back and you remember a season and a time where you felt the joy of God and the peace of his presence and a purpose for why you exist, and now you feel like you're plagued with worry, fear, anxiety. Your soil can change, but this moment today, you can decide to be good soil again. Are you the path? Have you become hardened by circumstances, challenges in your life? Are you unwilling to allow the word to penetrate into your heart? And the crazy thing is, is in one facet and aspect of our life, we can be good soil, and in another one, we can be a path. How do we know? Well, just ask yourself this question, where am I never wrong? Because it's likely that in that very place, we've hardened ourselves from listening to another side. We've hardened ourselves from hearing the conviction of the Spirit, and we've closed ourselves off from what could be life. Now, what you have to understand is Jesus, he loves you. Jesus is not trying to make your life miserable. Jesus knows that everything else is a cheap parody to the life that he has to offer. This is an invitation to life and joy and wholeness. So if you're hearing this message and you're like, yes, I'm the, I'm, I'm the hard soil and I'm terrible, that's not the message. The message is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. The message is that he wants you to be good soil. And so I want to conclude this message by one simple question in a time of quiet reflection and prayer. And it's a question that I want you to ask the Lord. What soil am I? Very simple. What soil am I? Where in my life have I become hardened? Where in my life is there thorns that I need to get down and uproot because they don't belong there? God, would you speak to us?
I got the sense as we were praying that there's someone in here who's got some deep bitterness because of pain caused to them in their life. And God just wants you to know that he loves you. And that he wants to heal you this morning. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. <clears throat> we thank you that you offer us life abundantly. It doesn't mean it's going to always be easy or perfect, but it's going to be good. God, we can't find life without you. We can't be made whole without you. And so we come to you this morning and say, make us good soil. God, in the parts of our life that are turned away from you, hardened, we soften those places. God, the idols that are in our life that are controlling us and manipulating us and moving us away from what you had intended for us, may today be the day that they are uprooted. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we move into a time of celebration and worship that this would be a moment when we would know that chains have been set free, you have released us, and we can walk in new life in you. We come to you in worship now in your name. Amen.